Hello and welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Lama. Today's interview is with Mark Miley. Mark Miley is a recording engineer who in the 1990s and early 2000s recorded a ton of bands at his Glasshand studio here in Richmond. And if you liked listening to music from the city, chances are he may have recorded a record by a band you loved. And when he wasn't recording, he was playing drums with his band Armwood, a genre-defying band that has still continued to push boundaries and make awesome music. I first met Mark back in 1995 when we went in to record my band, $5 Fines, first demo. When I saw what happened there, it changed me forever. In this little studio, which was essentially a garage in the Shaco Bottom part of the city, was assembled a collection of equipment and instruments in a manner that allowed many bands to make many awesome records there. And he was a down-to-earth guy. He made you feel like you were recording your record, which isn't what happens at some studios. And even if you're 15, he would trust your judgment and help attain the sound you wanted. It was his personal character and style that led me to start studying recording myself and eventually become an engineer four years later. So I wanted to share with you this interview with Mark. It was a great time for me, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. How did you get into uh, becoming a recording engineer? Um, I started recording, well, I started playing drums when I was in high school. That was kind of the point of it all. And uh, in later years, when I was in college, I met this bass player, John the Bass Player. And John was writing his own songs. And he would record by recording onto one cassette deck and then playing it over speakers and then recording back to another cassette deck to do overdubs. So uh, at some point after college, uh, my parents had lived in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, after college, uh, John had come out to to Washington, D.C. and stayed with my parents um, to get a job. And so we were, we were like, okay, well, we're in D.C. We'll just start a band here. And so we did. We started a band. And the clubs in D.C. at the time, you, you had to have your own PA system for the, for the clubs that I knew of. Um, so we both had jobs, and we started collecting PA equipment. So... Uh, at some point, John, as a songwriter, was like, well, I'm thinking about getting a four-track, like a cassette four-track, and this is like the late 70s. And we already had a console and microphones and all of this other stuff. And I said, well, John, you know, these days for about the same price, you could get a reel-to-reel four-track that uh, would sound a lot better. And so he did. He bought a four-track, and then he bought a two-track and blah, blah, blah. So we had this um, studio set up in the house. We were sharing a house, and we had a little, um, you know, the little home studio. So he started booking out studio time and um our band we played original material we didn't get that many shows because i don't know if people really wanted to hear the songs that we were playing but we had this pa system so i had bands approaching us about oh you know come out you know rent us the pa and uh this one band in particular had booked a show and they get and the guitar player from that band approaches me and says hey we got this show in fairfax and we need a sound man and I said, well, you know, I have gear, you know, I know how to, I know how to hook up the gear, but I don't know how to run, run sound. And he says, oh, you'll look, well, you'll learn. <laughs> so, <laughs> I got roped into being a sound man and, and I, I completely sucked. But then the word got around that I was a sound man after this one show. And I was like, I'm not really, you know, I've got a PA system. So I had this, this band called the Young Caucasians and they were like a new wave band. And they booked this show in Ocean City in this bar called Hooper's. And Hooper's was a, it was a barn. It was like literally you went in there, it was shaped like a barn, and it was the size of a barn. So I went in with our little PA system, and I knew how to set it up and stack it up and everything so that 
that um, it would sound good. I had figured out how to, you know, how to fill a big room with the thing anyway. And so this bar, there were bands like the Road Ducks were playing there, like Southern rock bands. And uh, we realized when we were setting up that we'd left the mic box on the sidewalk outside of the, the lighting guy's house, the light guy's house. So we're showing up to this club the size of a barn with a full PA system and four microphones is what we had. Well, luckily, this other wow. band that was Ohio called, um, I can't remember their name now, but they had driven, dropping um, speed and drove all night because they wanted to get to the beach because they were booked for the next night. So so we got these guys, and they've got like this 26-foot truck with all this equipment in it. And they're like, oh, man, you want to borrow our mics? <laughs> I was like, sure. So they crawled up to the front. You know, the stuff was in the front of the truck, and they bring the mics in, and we, we set it all up. And and the sound man for this band is the the drummer's brother. That's why he's working with them. And it turns out he's from Florida, and he likes to work with um, uh, Leonard Skinner and, and Artemis Pile Band and, and this sort of thing. So I'm here with this PA system, and I don't know how to run sound. But I'm chatting this guy up. You know, he's a real nice guy. He's a huge guy named Barry. And so after the first set, you know, the, the, the audience is kind of looking at the young Caucasians like, hey, you know, um, first of all, they're a new wave band playing a club where everybody's expecting covers. And second of all, I suck at sound. So in between the first set, I stepped up to start running sound again at the beginning of the second set. And Barry comes up and he goes, hey, if you, if you want any help or anything, just let me know. So I just stepped back, you know, three steps back from the console. I said, please, within a half a song. He had the young Caucasian sounding like you were at the front row of a major concert. And uh, it, it was wow. unbelievable. You know, exact same gear and everything. Just the difference was they were, all of a sudden there was a real sound man behind the console. And then he turns to me and he goes, you got it from here? <laughs> oh, my God. I was like, yeah. So I learned so much about, because I looked at what he had done, where he had set the EQs and everything, and what he had done. The first thing we he stepped behind that console. He started jerking those EQ knobs around like, wow, like really, really digging into them. And it was like, it was like an epiphany for me. The next show I did was with the young Caucasians again, and they were playing the homecoming at their, at their high school. They weren't in high school anymore, but they, they were like, you know, returning heroes or whatever. And it sounded really good. It was playing in, you know, we were playing in this gymnasium and it came off really well. And then I started uh, running sound in the clubs and um, and people were kind of like, well, what got into you? And and I was like, well, a 300-pound guy named Barry. So that was kind of the start of my um, being able to, you know, figure out how to run sound was doing live sound like that. And at some point, John had what really wasn't booking out the home studio so much. So so I started booking out to people. And, and it was a, you know, just a little house in Falls Church. And, and that's where I got started with it, with the four track. So it was pretty much all just, like on the job per se learning did you ever take an internship with anyone or uh like pursue any more like formal stuff like that no no i didn't and one one thing about uh the rock clubs in the, in dc at that point there were a lot of they had like heavy bands like heavy metal bands or, or cover bands that played the the rock hits like radio rock hits um there were a group of guys there that were running sound in those clubs that were really really good at it and it was um, it was kind of an inspiration. Like you had something to to reach for to to try to be as good as those guys. But no, I never really went to school for it. Uh, later in life, I, I bought some some books, uh, recording textbooks, which helped me with some 
some miking techniques like orchestral miking techniques or whatever that I would adapt to making acoustic guitars and things like that. But no, no, I didn't start out like that. It was just, it was OJT. When I met you, you had, uh, you were running glass hand studios down in Jaca Bottom here in Richmond. Um, how did that come about? Well, the studio in Falls Church, we named it glass hand because I named it glass hand because the singer on our band was doing stained glass sculpture. And at some point, I think he was unemployed. And some of the guys were living in an apartment in, in um, Alexandria. And he had this box. Of, he had done stained glass when he was in high school. And he had this box of stained glass uh, under his bed. And he slid it out one day because he was bored or whatever. He started looking at his right hand and cutting glass. And he, and he made this sculpture. It was about, I don't know, almost two feet tall. And I was just really... Uh, admired the sculpture, so I named the studio after the sculpture. Uh, later, I got uh, an 8-track. Um, it was another Tascam. It was a half-inch. It went from a quarter-inch 4-track uh, to a half-inch 8-track. And um, and my first 8-track recording sounded like my last 4-track recording, which kind of taught me that, well, it's not really the gear, it's the guy, you know. Um, there, there were things you have to figure out. And, and at some point, because I was in, in Northern Virginia, I was like, well, I'd really like to, like, to, like to do this for a living. And I didn't really want to start a business in Northern Virginia like that because it, it would have been so expensive. And I liked working with bands. And I think that the idea of, of having to do ad work or uh, audio to lay up to video for the government and things like that, you know, for government contracts, I didn't really want to do that. So at the time, my brother was going to VCU, and he was the house sound guy at Rockets. And uh, he was like, well, come, you know, come check out Richmond. And so I came down to Richmond. And I was like, man, there's so many bands down here. This is so cool. And so, if you will, I, you know, I loaded up the truck and moved to Beverly. And uh, okay. I didn't open up in business right away. I found a band practice space, and it was uh, I was next to the good guys. I installed a, a control room in there, kind of knocked that in. The, the whole thing was tiny. It was 500 square feet for the whole studio. And so I, I got this book on uh, acoustics and how to build a how to build a studio from scratch or whatever, budget studio. And I took some ideas out of that, and then so I built a control room wall in there. I didn't have a window or anything. I didn't really feel like it, I needed it. And so I started out in there, and I had the A-track, and I had an old – it was a bi-amp console or something like that. And at some point, a couple of friends of mine had helped me out uh, financing um, a more serious console, and then and then a 16 track, and and that's how that grew. And so, I think um, I advertised in some local music magazine. I can't remember what it was. And then we put some some pictures up, a little ads in the local music stores, and then people started to call, and, and it kind of built from there. Yeah, I remember watching you work, and it was amazing because the attention you had the sound like my band when we were in there we were, we were like I think like 15 years old or something. and but you, you took the job very seriously and you got like amazing sounds and I remember I think yeah you were running like the was it a one inch 16 track cast cam yeah movie? it was mm-hmm. um, and I remember watching you mix like when it came time to mix and you had this stick with like Little pushpin, yes, and that was how you you automated your muting. Um, like that <laughs> blew my mind because it, it seems so simple, but it, it it worked and it sounded like I was so amazed by 
the sounds you were getting there is kind of like an informative experience of what can be done. It doesn't have to do so much with the room or, you know, to kind of play the studio, but it has a lot to do with what the engineer can do and how they know how to work that space. Um, how did you... Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, you know, the room the room is important. I mean, tall ceilings are important to good sound, but glass hand, you know, the a funky old warehouses sometimes, the rooms actually sound good in those places. So. Right. Yeah, but it didn't, you know, I think the studio expectation, that was kind of like where there was that very, and now I think it's become more in vogue to um, have like kind of like live spaces. But I know for a long time, especially over at like Montana, that was a studio that was designed to have like dead, dead, everything dead, you know, and like you add, you add ambience, you know. <laughs> um, but, right, and then when I was working with Grant there, we we took all we took the ceiling tiles out. So. Yeah, I know, well, I know over the years, like you've ended up working on some like pretty cool records, and um, like definitely shaped um, like a lot of kind of the sound of a lot of like '90s and early 2000s like punk rock, especially from Richmond. Um, but like thinking back to that, where do you think um, kind of like the importance of like an engineer can be and how they work with a band? Like what do you think is the engineers, like maybe the, the biggest thing that engineers kind of mess up when working with a band? Well, I, I can tell you that the way I approach it is when a band comes in and they would start to play, you know what, I wouldn't like things up, especially glass hand was, that was a very efficient operation because um, I, I worked so much that I found what worked for me for getting uh, good sounds for particular instruments. And then as soon as you get mics up and you start throwing up the faders and, and see what the, the band sounds like, the whole thing is uh, my, I would listen to the band and go, okay, how can I, present what these guys are, are doing uh, in, in the best possible light with what I have to work with at the time. So, um, you know, I've got producer credit on a lot of stuff and I never really, um, you know, fully produced anything. I, I, I just kind of keyed off of what I, what I heard the band was doing and just trying to, you know, uh, put, put the best foot forward with that, I guess is the best way to put it. Have you ever worked with bands that made you, kind of reevaluate the way that you approach recording something? Well, well sure, you know, because I, I didn't work in a bubble and and just because I had it up on the speakers and was was doing uh, uh, something that didn't mean that, you know, somebody couldn't come in and go, oh, you know, could you do this or that or that's not really the approach we were looking for or, you know, that kind of thing. So I didn't... Um, you know, I, I didn't really have a my way or the highway attitude about stuff. It's just, okay, this is, you know, this is what I have to work with. And, and uh, so, what do you, you know, the same thing, I, I would want, want the bands, I would want to know from the bands what they were looking for. But there, I mean, a glass hand, a lot of times it was like, man, those were quick demos. I mean, people, they came in and you know, ran in and ran out so quickly. And a lot of times, a lot of those people didn't have a lot of experience recording. So, but, you know. I'm not sure how much input I got all the time, but there certain there were certain times when I learned a lot from the people I was working with. As you kind of like developed as an engineer, what became like what what has become like your like your favorite kind of project? Like I I know um, 
you know, budgets can de- definitely vary. But for you, like where you feel like uh, the best recording can can be done, um, does budget matter, or is it more in like pre-production? Or I mean, what are your thoughts on that for like a band that's trying to get like the best recording they can with what they're working with? The more you can, you can step in and just uh, you know play it for real from the from the top. Um, certainly um, is the easiest thing on a budget rather than if you know, so you're like Pink Floyd and you're going to write the, write the um, record in the studio or something <laughs> like really, really good bands with have good uh, musicians with good sounding instruments and stuff. You can just throw mics on it and everybody engineer will tell you that it's just like um, the computer people say crap in crap out, but um, you know, the better the band is from the get and the more organized you are as far as that's concerned that that saves a lot of budget. You know, as far as yeah. like, you know, also ask what's my favorite project to work on. You know, I, I, yeah. to be honest with you, I really liked all of them and it really didn't, it, it didn't matter to me. I liked, I liked doing the work so much and you can learn a lot from um, something you're struggling with, uh, you know, more so than something that's easy to do, or you can learn a lot from something that's easy to do. And that maybe you can take things a little farther than normal because you're not having to, uh, work so hard to get something to to sound a certain way. You know, a lot of folks get really focused on gear and that kind of thing, and that's something like I, I kind of want to talk about for a second. Um, what do you What do you view as like the importance of like the equipment in that whole uh, process? I, th- I think no matter what gear you have, you, you try to get the most out of what you have. Like I said about the going from four track to eight track, that really taught me that getting a new piece of equipment. And, and to be honest, like the the sound quality of the four track and the sound quality of the eight track are pretty much the same kind of piece of equipment, except the eight track had twice as many tracks. So all of that added, it added flexibility, didn't really add something better to the sound. But if you take what you have and you just squeeze it and squeeze it and squeeze it to get the most out of it, um, it makes you appreciate when you step up to something better. And I'll have to say that equipment has become, um, more of an issue to me. I'm I'm back into recording now. I haven't been in the business since 2004, but my, my band Armwood got back together again, and we were talking about recording, deciding to record. Um, I started collecting equipment rather than you know rather than looking around for a studio and that kind of thing. We had we had discussed that, so I bring that angst of having been in the studio business and the gear that I had to work with to what I'm doing now, and I am buying some more. Um, standard of the industry like high dollar pieces because because of what they do and the and the the, be, the better clarity or or whatever that uh, comes with that but like through the glass hand days when i was using cascam equipment which was not really highly thought of in the um in the pro market um, a lot of people were shocked at what um people that in the business were shocked at what i was getting out of the equipment that i had so I, you know, I say like take what you have and like get try to do the most with it. Use your ears. If you use your ears, like this is what I'm looking for, then then work at it to see if you can get that out of what you have. With like something like the Tascam, like with the preamps, like, how were you able to get such good sound out of that preamp? I, you know, one thing I, I didn't run through the whole channel strip. I I used the direct outs on the channels. Another thing about that is that even like, I have a a nicer console now. I have an AMEC. It's, it has a lot of Rupert Neve parts in it. But when I go to mix, the only Rupert Neve thing in there is uh, is the EQ section. But 
the console was set up to do surround sound and all of this stuff. So there are a lot of VCAs in it, which a VCA is a voltage controlled amplifier, which means rather than the sound going through a physical knob thing, where when you turn the knob up and down, it changes resistance for the volume to go up and down. When you move the fader, what it does is it sends an electrical signal to an electronic component that electronically moves the signal up and down. And what happens when you run through VCAs is it tends to soften up and mush up the sound a little bit. Um, the particular console I have right now, by the time you would hear something coming over the speakers, it had, it, it had gone through uh, at least three VCAs. So what I do with that is I don't, I use the outputs on the console where I'm not using any of the VCAs. So it's stuff like that. You just have to use your ears and listen to, you know, what. and, and then on the other hand, you know, when you listen to a big blown up um, pop music vocal, that thing's been through, you know, I don't know how many compressors and whatever, but <laughs> you hear it on. <laughs> you know, so a lot of times those things are, they're squished down frequency limited and they've been squashed to hell. So it stands out in the mix. So it just depends yeah. on what you're looking for. Like for drum sound, well, I don't know. I don't yeah. want to squish my drum sound down that much, you know. I don't know. It just depends on what your what instrument it is. For this Armwood recording, um, are you moving back? Are you are you going digital on it? Or are you going to tape or? Um, I still have I still have the analog sixteen track. In fact, I have a second one that belongs to a friend of mine. Um, but for this, I wound up buying some audio interfaces. But I am mixing analog, so it's an analog console. So the 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 interfaces I'm recording on a computer, but the interfaces have analog inputs and outputs. So I am coming back through the analog console, and then I'm mixing through another interface, um, which is my my two track, I guess. So I'm I'm digital now, as far as that part of it's concerned. As far as like all my compression effects, I'm using one plugin as kind of my generic compressor sometimes when I need to control stuff. But I have a lot of nice outboard stuff and with the digital stuff because you're not adding hiss you can you can bounce out of the computer and back into the computer and run through your your high dollar compressors and things like that and use them more than once i recently bought um a studer 80 which is a big two inch tape deck one of the reasons i've been buying some of this more um standard of the industry stuff is because i've i had use of some of that stuff at montana but there are certain things like when you read about them in magazines that, oh, you know, this and that and whatever. And for me, I really have to get my hands on it. So I've actually, you know, I've spent the, the money on some of this stuff just so I can hear for myself in A and B. And I haven't gotten around to doing that with the Studer. I mean, the Studer's in really nice shape. Um, we're writing material right now, not really tracking anything. So I don't, I don't have it set up yet. And, and how do you feel about the difference between like, like, you know, I know back in the, early 2000s, there was a pretty marked difference between digital and analog recording, like not getting into mixing, but just the recording aspect, just, just due to the, like, you know, the availability of high quality A to D and D to A converters, the analog to digital conversion. Um, how, where do you feel that is now? And then until I got the studio set up, I, I don't really know. Cause like you were saying back in the day with the ADATs and the Tascam DA88s, I would track on those things and I'd be sitting there going, wow, man, this really sounds nice or whatever. And then I'd go and do something on the one in 16 track. And all of a sudden the one in 16 track would make that stuff sound like crap. And um, so I, I'm like, okay, so, <laughs> so now I, I don't know. And what I plan to do is I plan to, to you know, do a split and I'm just going to track to the digital and track to the, 
the two inch at the same time, then I can play back. And yeah, I can yeah. compare. I mean, that's the best way to do it because then, <laughs> then I, one of them is going to be probably better, you know, and and you don't have to uh, kind of tie yourself to one way before getting into that. Um, and that that brings up another question for me. Um, when you were doing like a lot of this like analog recording. Um, did you do much editing? You know, um, I'm really good at razor blade editing, <laughs> so, yeah. but, but in general, no, with the, with the most of the clients I did, I, I worked on one guar record when, um, Brad, the drummer came in and he wants, he, he was numbering the fills, you know, and so I'm sitting there in Montana cutting two inch, you know, taking the fills out of one song, you know, out of one take and slicing them into another or whatever. So, um, oh, wow. I've, I've I'd worked on a record while I was playing drums up in, in Pennsylvania one time. And this guy, uh, Paul Kruger, and we called him Paul the Blade Kruger because he would he would edit the two-inch. And so that kind of gave me the, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for, the um, strength or whatever to, <laughs> to try that myself. And, and I, I got pretty good at it. So Yeah, cause, I mean, that's the thing is, like, when you do something like that, like, especially in the analog time, like, that that, that is, like, time. And if your band's on a budget... Um, you know, that's the big thing I've seen to kind of change is that with digital, it's so much easier to get editing. Like I remember when we recorded with you when I was 15, it was like, we play it right. We can't afford this. <laughs> like we got to play it as good as we can and get out, you know? Um, but nowadays it's like, you can just grab the digital file and split it. And just so quickly, um, it's very interesting to see what that's kind of done overall to like, I guess the expected level of, perfection in the musicianship on recording sure. sound. Sure. Uh, how do you feel about that kind of progression? You know, I don't mind. It just depends, you know, if, it depends on, um, I think that if you're in a band and you do a recording, regardless of what goes into making that recording sound uh, perfect in your, in your eyes or whatever, and sound great, that by the time you hit the stage with it, that you should be able to, to play, you know, play your songs and I don't mean to like play everything exactly like your record or whatever, but to do a, a good rendition uh, of a song. But, you know, back right. in the day, a lot of those big famous records, those were, those were punched and edited and multiple takes and comping takes and, and all the stuff you do on digital can be done uh, in the analog world or most, most of it can be done in the analog world. But like you say, it's, it's a lot more work. Um, some of that stuff, if you get good at it with analog, it, it that becomes pretty efficient too, but I don't know. A lot of times it's just easier to replay something and, and than it is to, uh, to do even in the digital, digital editing. I'm talking, I don't know if you know Bill McElroy, but he has a yeah. studio slip disc. I was talking to Bill yeah. one time about, you know, did, because he had a sonic solutions, like a digital setup when uh, we were all still doing analog. And he said, yeah, you can do all, all the edits digital, but, and you think that it's going to save you time, but what people, when they start to realize the potential of it, they spend more time <laughs> fixing stuff with editing. And so it, he said it doesn't really help the budget at all. <laughs> so that, is, that was his well, take. It's kind, of like, it. it's kind of like Pandora's box. Like once you open it, right? you know, you can just keep going down that rabbit hole. <laughs> I've had bands where, you know, you get this like harmony on a chorus or something and it worked really well, like one time. And I would do a mix down of that onto an analog uh, two-track tape deck. And then you just sit there and rock the reels until you lined it up. And then you could just 
you could fire them up and punch it in. And then you go to every place where that vocal was supposed to happen, and you could just fly it in. It was called flying it in. So I was doing the same thing with analog tape decks, you know, rather than cutting and copying and pasting whatever on the computer, same idea. Do you feel like there's more of an art to that process? No, no. Another thing about um, tape, well, so many decisions get made while the tape is rewinding, and it gives you a little break to think about things and, and that sort of thing. I don't really think one medium is better than the other. I think that there is some uh, there are some aspects of the process of recording with analog equipment that, in a way, if it's making you work for it, it's kind of more fun. But, you know, like Time Marches On and people that work with digital stuff are doing great things with digital stuff. Me personally, I, I'm, I've mixed some, especially like live shows, I've mixed on a computer. I don't really enjoy it. Um, I'd rather be sitting behind a, a console um, you think it and you reach for the knob uh, kind of thing, you know, so. I've got two specific questions here. Um, one, what would you consider favorite preamp for a uh, kick drum and maybe a snare on a, like kind of more like a rock slash punk record? You know, I think with preamps, especially if you have like a smaller setup, um, it's just good to get something that's versatile all the way around. And um when I was working on Montana, uh, Grant had the big AMEC console. It was a AMEC M2500. And it had the preamps yeah. in it were kind of strange, but Bill was renting space. Bill McElroy, that had slipped just up in Ashland now, was renting space there in the same building. And he had some API, like four-channel things in a rack unit, and then he had four channels of um, Hardys in a rack unit. And I really liked the Hardys on drums. And I probably use those on a lot of like the hot water music and the veil and those those things that I did. Um, the APIs were really great on oh, across the board on a lot of things too, like especially guitars and bass, vocals and that sort of stuff. Anything in that uh, realm are really great. Uh, anything that the, the Rupert Neve stuff. I bought a couple of uh, the 1073 rack mount things they have, and I bought a couple of the porticos. Um, his current company, and then I got the AMEC console, and I've you know I've compared the the three of those against each other, and I really reach for the board a lot of times because it has the same mic preamps as like the AMEC ninety ninety eight. You can throw them on anything, and they just sound good on anything. But if you have anything high quality like that, um, you know I haven't tried out any of the clones. I don't know. I wouldn't know about those. There's um, a company called Hairball that makes some neat stuff. And a friend of mine has built built a couple of kind of custom did stuff based on the, the hairballs and funky box for me, and I really like that a lot. But I just think you know if you have you know just having a pair of mic preamps for most stuff is is uh, is probably good for home recording. A second question that's kind of well recording Esther. I know when I I started recording, my relationship with audio as like a fan inevitably suffered um, because. I wasn't able to really like listen to records of these kind of like monolithic things. Um, I would start kind of critiquing in this, in this kind of thing. Um, sure. <laughs> yep. And that affected everything from like what I was comfortable, like, you know, what I liked listening to, to what I like listening to it on. Um, so wh- how do you enjoy music these days? Like, I mean, do you have like a, like for your, do you listen generally at like home or, or do you have listen like on your phone or 
Um, do you have like a, a, a nice setup to listen to? Are you listening to it in the car? Like, uh, my brother has this uh, habit of, and I don't know if he still does, but he had a habit of, um, if he ran into a set of speakers, like stereo speakers in a thrift store, he, he couldn't leave without them. So right. the thing is, most of the speakers that wind up in thrift stores, the foam that surrounds the, the woofers uh, rots out on them, and that's really all that's bad with them. So he wound up with a pair of JBLs um, that have the same components in them as the, as the studio monitors, really similar to the ones I had at glass hand, and he refoamed them, and he gave them to me. So I had those. And then oh, wow. I found a 1969 Fisher all discrete 20 watt on a side um, receiver stereo receiver in a thrift store and it worked. Um, I've since recapped it and done all this stuff to it. But so the thing's 20 watts on a side, but it weighs 40 pounds. <laughs> so that's my main listening to stereo at home. Um, wonderful setup. I have an old uh, uh, Apple iBook, a little white one. I swapped out the hard drive for a 250 gig hard drive, and that's my my overgrown iPod, if you will. So that's what I have for listening at home. If I'm working around the house, oh, wow. a lot of times I just just have it on repeat. So yeah, I'm always curious about that because it's, it's very interesting what folks listen on. Um, for folks that are like looking to make a good record for their band, um, I know a lot of bands nowadays they'll decide to you know like track stuff themselves. And then some folks, you know, they'll go into the studio. I guess it just depends on where their technical prowess is. But um, what kind of advice would you give to any of those bands that are, you know, trying to make a good recording these days? No, if you want to spend your money, I would spend the money on the front end and go into some place that has a nice high ceiling room with some good microphones and mic preamps and, and track your drums there, you know, if you have a drummer, because then um, you don't have to have all those microphones and and preamps and all that sort of that's a that's a huge expense to be able to do that and you're more likely to get a like a professional quality drum sound that way and then you can go home and with a couple of decent mic preamps or whatever and you can you can layer stuff up you know that's kind of a traditional way to make records um if you're if you really practice a lot of times you can you can keep original tracks but even at glass ham when i was doing demos and that sort of thing mostly you're just looking for a drum track to start with and uh, after you get that, then you start layering stuff on top. And that way you can kind of listen to performances and get ideas about uh, production ideas. Like if you want to add add things here and there, like little guitar parts or percussive things or backup vocals and all that sort of stuff. And you can do that stuff like more easily at home. And then maybe, you know, maybe take it someplace to mix where if you know somebody has uh, decent mix ears. Those are the uh, guess- at the begin- beginning and the end, I guess, is what I'm saying. For folks that are like maybe interested in learning to record themselves to get into engineering, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, I don't say uh, for me it was OJT. You know, I guess there, but you know, there's a lot of source material out there. Um, you can learn anything from the internet these days, I guess. <laughs> so uh, when I guess when I'm struggling with my computer-based recording programs, I go to the internet and watch videos and and try to figure out, you know, WTF or whatever's going on with it. You know, and a lot of stuff, I, you know, I look at some of the stuff on the internet, I have to laugh at it too. You know, it's a lot of crap out there too. But, um, you know, if you can find somebody, if you can intern with somebody, that's a good way to do it. I think a lot of people come up that way. If you're, if you're working with somebody that's, that's doing really good work and then you get used to hearing that, um, it's something to, to strive for, to aspire to. And that concludes our interview with Mark. 
I'd like to thank Mark for taking time to talk with me. You can check out his band Armwood by going to armwoodtheband.bandcamp.com. And as always, thanks for listening. This has been Various Things. <laughs>